Please remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is from the Gospel of John. Again, pay careful attention to God's holy word. Now Jesus had not yet come to the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going out to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who were with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was laying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have given us this time to come and to worship you, to be in your presence with your people, to hear your word. We pray that as we meditate upon it and consider it, that you would reveal, a, reveal to us more of your son Jesus, that you would conform us into his image, and that we would trust in you in greater ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. When Rachel and I were engaged in our very first premarital counseling session, uh, the pastor that we were meeting with, as soon as he came in, he looked at me and he said, okay, Bobby, you have 30 seconds. Explain the gospel to me. And then he began to unpack his stuff and pull out his laptop and I was sitting there locked up. Go, go. You have 30 seconds. Time is running. Rachel, you're next. And so I... I jumped through a, a quick gospel presentation, and, and Rachel stuttered her way through one. And, uh, and we got done with our presentations, and he said, that's wonderful, that's great, that's absolutely correct. Uh, what about the resurrection? You see, we had both mentioned that Jesus came, that Jesus died for our sins, and we both mentioned that we could be forgiven because of that, but neither of us mentioned Jesus' resurrection or the hope of our own. When the pressure was on, it slipped our mind. Now, in the same circumstances, you might not make the same mistake that we did, but then again, 
you might. And while every Christian would formally acknowledge that Christ's resurrection is central to their beliefs, it does not seem to occupy the same prominence in our hearts and our thoughts and our lives as it did for the writers of Scripture or for the church down to the present day. But Christianity is nothing other than knowing and trusting in a resurrected person, in knowing the resurrected Jesus Christ. It's so easy for us to think about the practical living of Christian doctrine without realizing that Christian doctrine itself can be thought of as nothing more than seeking the right way to interpret life and history in light of the fact of the resurrected Jesus. How should we think about things now that this man is alive again? What does it mean about him? What does it mean about me, about God, about life, about history? That's Christianity. Now, uh, normally in sermons, we walk our way through a single text or, or through books of the Bible, but every now and then we like to uh, do a sermon on a collection of texts like we are today, especially if it's on a theme or on a, a church season. And I wanted to, before we left the Easter season, put the resurrection in the forefront of our minds again. And so we're going to consider all three readings uh, today, and we're going to see how the scriptures show that the resurrection is at the bedrock of the Christian faith, how it is the fuel for Christian hope, and it gives us the assurance of God's love. That's the title that you can see in your bulletin, Resurrection Faith, Resurrection Hope, and Resurrection Love. So we're going to have a little bit of a Bible drill today. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians 15, and then we'll move to Job 14, and finally John 11. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll consider resurrection faith. In the opening verses of this chapter, Paul declares, contrary to what 20-year-old Bobby thought, that the resurrection of Christ is absolutely essential to the gospel that he preached. In verses 1 through 4, he says this, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again according to the Scriptures. So while certainly more can be said about the Gospel, when Paul wants to delineate the bare essentials of Christ's work on our behalf, he says that it is he died for your sins, that he was buried, and that he rose. Today, the plausibility of Jesus' resurrection is a matter of, of debate. But for the early Christians, the resurrection wasn't something so much that needed proving. Just look at verses in 5 and 6, Paul casually mentions that 500 people at once saw the risen Christ. And when he was on trial uh, before the kings in the book of Acts, he, he tells um, Felix that, hey, this, this resurrection was not done in the corner. You know that this man was executed and that he was raised. What we're, what we're really debating here is what it means. No, the resurrection was not something so much that needed proving as it was something that gave proof. It happened... But what did it mean? What did it prove? 
many things, but here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us two things that are absolutely bedrock to the Christian faith. If you're united to Christ by faith, the resurrection means that you can have absolutely certainty, absolute certainty about two things. One is that your sins are forgiven. Look at verse 14. He says, If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. That's really strong. No resurrection, no Christian faith. Why? Verse 17. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. What is he talking about? Let me explain it to you this way. Is there anyone else in the room that's like me that gets nervous every time they leave Walmart? Okay, no, which is okay, which means that everybody is now thinking to themselves, why are you so nervous every time you leave Walmart? And the reason is because every time I leave Walmart, there's someone at the door waiting for me. And that someone at the door has a question. Can I see your receipt? What they're really asking is, is everything paid for? Is everything in your bag paid for? And I always think when I leave Walmart that I'm going to have something in my bag that's not paid for, probably put there by a toddler, and they're going to find it, and then I'm going to end up uh, you know, on the wall there uh, with, with all the other criminals, right? What's the point? Here's the point. It's absolutely central to the gospel, as Paul says, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And you know that he died, but how do you know that everything was paid for? In Genesis 3, God gives the penalty for sin to Adam and, he said, Adam and Eve. He says, on the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Yes, thank you. Ezekiel 18.20, the soul that sins, it shall die. Paul tells us in Romans 6, as we've been, uh, Pastor Sexton has been preaching through, the wages of sin is death spiritual death, separation from God under his wrath, ultimately, eternally in hell, but also physical death. On the day they ate of that fruit, they were separated from God, and the march begins throughout the book of Genesis, where it chronicles the lives of Adam and all of his descendants. He lived X number of years, and then he died. He lived X number of years, and then he died. The penalty, the wages of sin, is death. And the resurrection demonstrates that Jesus has fully paid the price for your sins and triumphed over death. If Jesus had remained dead, it would have meant that his sacrifice was insufficient and that sin still held power over you. That's verse 17. He says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But, but, Paul says in, in verse 20, now Christ is risen from the dead. It's the receipt. You see? Paid in full. How do you know? Jesus died and Jesus is alive. And that means you should remind yourself of Jesus' resurrection every time you are condemned. What do I mean? Well, if you, if you are not a Christian, if you are are exploring Christianity, if you've just come in today, you need to know that that sense of existential dread that you feel 
is real. The Bible says that the wrath of God abides on all who do not believe in the name of the Son of God, all who have not entrusted themselves to Christ. That really is true of you. But Jesus' resurrection means you should never, never let that uh, prevent you from coming to him for forgiveness or think that your sins are so bad that they can't be forgiven. Jesus' resurrection proves that he has the ability to forgive anything, and his death proves he has the desire to forgive every single one of your sins. His resurrection is on the other side of a bloody cross that he carried as an atoning sacrifice for sinners. And his resurrection proves that he was not a helpless victim, but a spotless sacrifice. And so if you are condemned, if you are under the wrath of God, flee to Christ today and trust yourself to him today. His resurrection shows that he can and desires to forgive anything. But if you're a Christian, it means that you should remind yourself of Jesus' resurrection every time you're convicted. Why? Because you don't have to worry about what you find in the bag. Every item is already paid for. That means you can be free and honest and courageous in your repentance. All right? Don't be afraid to get down to the level of the heart. Christ's death and resurrection is enough to cleanse you in the level of the heart, of the motivations, of the desires. All right? We're not critical. You're not critical because you have high standards. We're critical because we're arrogant and self-righteous. It's not so much that you're insecure as it is that you're vain. But don't be afraid to look into the heart and admit to God those things that you find there because Jesus is alive. Now every analogy breaks down. And this one breaks down because sin is not something for you to keep. It's not something for you to acknowledge and take out of the store with you. As we've been hearing all throughout Romans 6, the resurrection also proves that Jesus has the power to break that sin in your life. But if we concurrently see the depth of our sin and how it offends God, the resurrection will show us the enormity of God's love and grace, and this understanding can lead us to deeper and more courageous repentance. And as you learn to repent at those deeper levels, it will work its way out into the levels that we're more comfortable talking to God and others with. The Apostle John tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. How can you know? How can you be sure? Because Jesus is alive from the dead. Because Jesus is alive, you can have absolute certainty your sins are forgiven. That's one. Two, the resurrection means you can have absolute certainty about your own future resurrection. This is actually what motivated Paul to write this portion of letter. Some of the Corinthians were wavering on this point. Look at verses 12 and 13. Paul says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Don't miss Paul's logic here. He says that the glorious bodily resurrection of Jesus 
and the glorious bodily resurrection of believers is so tied together that you can't have one without the other. Right? He says, no resurrection of Jesus, no resurrection for you. But he also reverses it. He's, if you say no resurrection of you, then you must necessarily say no resurrection of Jesus earlier either. Why? Because we're united to him by faith. He is the first fruits. We are the harvest, as he says in verse 20 and following. But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Just as Adam brought a legal, spiritual, and physical death upon all united to him by his disobedience, Christ, through his death and resurrection, brings life in all of its dimensions to those united to him by faith. You can be sure that just as Christ was raised, at the right time, you too will rise from the dead. This, Paul says in verse 19, is the sum and substance of the Christian hope. This is the Christian hope, that we will rise like Christ because he has forgiven us. And it's a hope that you'll see has roots all the way back in Old Testament times. Go ahead and turn to Job 14. Consider resurrection hope. If you're looking for Job, go left. If you hit the Pentateuch that's too far, come back. It's in between Esther and Psalms. All right, Job 14. Now, most of you know that Job is a book about intense suffering, and we all face suffering in a fallen world. Some of you, I know, have, have recently lost family members or jobs. Our health fails us in one way or another, especially as we age. We can be persecuted for righteousness. We can be blamed unfairly. And all of these things happen to us at one time or another and to one degree or another. But pretty much all of those have happened to Job at once. That's the context of the book. God has allowed Job to lose everything except his life. And Job wishes that he could lose that. No health. His family has died. He's lost his wealth. His home is destroyed. And his friends counsel that they give him is basically just rubbing salt in the wound. As we get near the middle of the book here, surprisingly, beginning in verse 7 in our reading today, he talks about hope. He says this, For there is hope for a tree, if it is cut down, that it will spring again, and that its tender shoots will not cease, though its root may grow old in the earth, and its stump may die in the ground yet, at the scent of water, it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. The book of Job is a extended cycles of poetry. And you understand the image that Job is using here. He says even if a tree gets cut down right to the roots, right to a stump, it can sprout and live again under the right circumstances and in the right time. And if you've ever pruned a tree or pruned plants or tended a garden, you know the image that he's using. I learned, I learned about this in my very first 
week working at a landscaping company in Raleigh. My, I think it was the third or the fourth day we pulled into a job and as we were getting out of the truck, the crew leader told me, all we're going to do is put some mulch in this front bed and prune some of these trees up here. And it was a beautiful, I mean, as most of the houses in North Raleigh are, it's just an Edenic yard, uh, pristine mowed grass and we're gonna clean up this front yard. So I got out and I helped start throwing mulch into the bed and the crew leader gets out and pulls a chainsaw out and he comes up to these eight to 10 foot trees and he just starts, boom, putting the chainsaw right at waist height, chopping these things down. And uh, so I looked at the guy helping me with the mulch and I said, what, what's he doing to those trees? And he said, he's, he's pruning the trees. And I thought for sure there's a language barrier or something going on here. Mo you know, most of my coworkers, all of, all of my coworkers were, were from Mexico. I said, what is he doing? I said, he's, he's pruning the trees. I said, no, he's murdering the trees. He's, he's cutting them down, you know, four or five feet tall, this tall. We're, we're going to get a call about this. They said, no, no, he's, he's, he's pruning them. You see, what I didn't understand was, and some of you probably understand, these, these were crepe myrtles. Okay, crepe myrtles only bloom on new growth. In other words, the more wood that you remove, the more old wood that you remove, the more new growth that plant will have in this growing cycle, the more flowers you will get in the flowering season, which was in the middle of the summer. And if you've seen healthy, beautiful crepe myrtle trees, you know they get these gigantic blooms in the summer and they can grow incredibly tall um, in the right places and the right circumstances. And sure enough, when we came back to that house for a different job later that summer, down the driveway, there was like these 15, 16 foot tall trees just gloriously heavy with these purple pink blooms huge cone crepe myrtle blooms that's the picture that job is using that even cut down under the right circumstances the pruning itself leads to glory now, in the larger context, he says it doesn't seem to be that way with man. In his experience, no one has yet risen from the dead. Look at verse 10. He says, But man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last, and where is he? As water disappears from the sea, and a river becomes parched and dried up, so man lies down. I think Job is being honest here about how suffering, especially hard suffering, can obscure our hope. But notice that he calls death sleep, something temporary. And he says there is a time, the end of time, when the heavens and the earth are no more, that we will rise. He expects that. Verse 12, so man lies down and does not rise until the heavens are no more. They will not wake or be roused from their sleep. And what a longing he has for that day. Verse 13, oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me till your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. You will call and I will answer you. You will desire the work of your hands. He says, history tells me, my senses tell me, my experience tells me 
that thus far no one rises from the dead. It seems like man never rises, but you, God, you put me in the ground and I still will have hope because you can call me out of the grave. If you called for me in your love and in your power, I know I would answer even if I was dead, even if I was dead for a really long time. Now, the, the image of the stump and the growth means that Job understands in some dim way that the resurrection will not merely be a consolation for the sufferings of his life, the sufferings of this life. Although, of course, it will be a consolation for the sufferings of this life. No, in picking that image, what he's communicating is that, that the glory that you will have in the resurrection will be greater than it otherwise would have been had you not suffered in certain ways in this life. If the crepe myrtles had not been cut down to waist height, they would not have risen to 16 feet tall. They would not have had the blooms that they did. If you don't prune the plant, it doesn't bear the fruit that it otherwise would have. Job understands this in some dim way, but Paul tells us it explicitly in 2 Corinthians 4. He says this, Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. Friends, all of you, all of you are undergoing trials. And some of you are undergoing severe trials and it's natural to want the why question answered why is this happening if i could see the big picture if god would let me understand all the details and why this or why that is happening uh, then i could face this i would have i would have the strength that i need and in the larger context job tells us that god often never gives those answers and that we wouldn't be able to understand them anyway. God does not tell Job all of why he suffered. But you can know some things. You can know this, that your suffering is removing some of that dead wood. You can know that it's working weight and glory in you somehow. You can know this because the resurrected Lord Jesus still bears the marks of his crucifixion and they do not detract, but add to his glory. But to experience that as hope, as fuel, to bear you up under suffering, it matters where and when you place your hope. The Apostle Peter tells us to rest your hope fully, fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In order to experience that as hope that bears you up under suffering as Job did, you must place your hope where Job did. When the heavens and earth are no more, when God calls you out of the grave, or as Peter says, when the glory is revealed, when Christ returns. You can know that. The other thing you can know is that God loves you. That's also part of Job's resurrection hope. Look at verse 15. You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the works, the work of your hands. Desire 
There it means a deep longing, a yearning. It's nearly lust. And sometimes in other places that it's used in the Old Testament, it almost means lust. It's a, a deep craving. God will call Job from the grave because God wants him. God loves him. He's convinced that God's powerful enough to do that, and he's convinced that God loves him enough to do that. God's love assures him of the resurrection, and his resurrection assures him of God's love. Which brings us to the last point, resurrection love. Look to John 11. What Job is describing is God's desire to be with his people, and for everything to be right with them, for all to be well with them. Like parents, especially mothers, when you have a sick or a suffering child, you want to be with them, and you want everything to be well with them. That kind of love was exemplified uh, for me this week as I was meditating on John 11. I thought about some friends that we have in Austin, Texas. They have a son who has severe, severe reactions to antibiotics of different kinds and maybe all kinds. They're really not sure at this point. But um, whenever they try to treat him for diseases with medicine, he gets fevers, swelling, pain up and down his body, sores, rashes, and the condition can last weeks, sometimes more than a month. And there's absolutely, I mean, there's very, very little that they can do about it to make him feel comfortable and the first time they had this reaction he had this reaction when he was quite young three or four I think um, one of our friends was up with him in the middle of the night trying to comfort him and uh, this mother she looked at him and she said uh, Samuel her son's name Samuel I wish that I could take this for you I wish that I could take this for you and Samuel's eyes immediately got very bright as he laid in bed and he said mom that's a great idea <laughs> Why can't we do, let's do that, you know? So then now she has to explain to him, no, you know, I, I wish that I could do that. That's, that's just my love for have, I have for you. That's not, that's not possible. But that's the love that she has for him. In John 11, one of the points that John wants to drive home for us is that Jesus loved Lazarus. He says in verse 3, 11 verse 3, Therefore the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, the one whom you love is sick. In verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. In verse 36, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus weeps. Verse 35, he groans with anger and grief at the sight of death. Verse 38, he does all things for the glory of God, verse 4 and verse 40, but that does not make him passionless. He loves Lazarus. He longs for him, and so he calls him out of the grave. Verse 33, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. You see? But here's the thing. Jesus knows that if he calls Lazarus out of the grave, it will put him in the grave. You and I might expect 
that the news of this miracle, this sign, which was done so close to Jerusalem and seen by numerous eyewitnesses, would lead to Jesus finally being accepted as the Lord and Messiah. Here is a man who has power over death. But Jesus knew that it would have the exact opposite effect. It demonstrated to his enemies just how great of a threat he was. Some of the, witness, the witnesses that saw him call Lazarus out leave this scene and begin to make plans for Jesus' murder. This is the whole reason why the disciples are reticent to go to Lazarus' house in the first place. They say, Lord, the people in that area have lately, they've wanted to stone you, and you're going to go? And yes, Jesus will go, and he will call Lazarus out knowing the future. It's all part of Jesus' plan. He is in total control. He planned to lay down his life willingly, to experience the horrible torture of crucifixion, the bitter wrenching of body from soul, the mocking, the spitting, the unspeakable and unknowable wrath of God. He was willing to do this because by means of it, he knew that he would accomplish for you and me what he had for Lazarus in a complete and a final way, a victory over death that would last forever. You see, he knew that in order to call out Lazarus truly, to call Job out at the end of time, to call you out of your grave forever, he was going to have to take it for you. He was going to have to go under the wrath of God and into the grave and out of the other side first so that you could live forever. And that is exactly what he did. Why? For the glory of God and because he loves you. The resurrection of Christ is the ultimate demonstration of God's love for us. In Christ, we have the assurance that nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of God in Christ. The Bible says that it was God's great love for you that sent Jesus to the cross. But here, in John 11, you can also see that it is his great love for you that will pull you out of the grave on the last day. It will be your name that you hear Jesus call on that day when he calls you out of the grave, when he remembers you at the set time that he has set for you. It will be your name as the one who desires you, who loves you, calls your name and pulls you back to life. Friends, let your heart and your minds and your lives go to the resurrection of Jesus on your behalf. Go there daily, minute by minute, and find what you need for the assurance of your faith. An eager hope to sustain you in trial in the seal of God's everlasting love. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the resurrection of your son, Jesus. We thank you that it assures us of your love that it gives us strength to face the trials yet remaining and hope that you are working all things together for our good and that it assures, of, assures us of our forgiveness and our relationship with you. Lord, we pray that you impress the gospel, the resurrection of your son onto our hearts and through our lives more deeply today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.